Welcome to Mandatory Redistribution Party. Imagine a life in which not only your needs, but your desires are met. You don't just get food and shower, but a delicious bioengineered steak that's both vegan and good for you. A house made out of chrome, but really comfy chrome. You gaze upon your reflection in your chrome sofa. You look great. You wink at yourself. Imagine the only work you do being stuff like playing Guitar Hero and finally writing that epic poem about cheese. Whatever you might call it, post-capitalism, fully automated luxury communism, anarcho-beef-chrome future, this idea is an appealing one that's been rattling around in leftist brains for a while. In this episode, I talk to Mariah Fanabeka and J.A. Smith about some of the ideas in their upcoming book, Work, Want, Work, Labour and Desire at the End of Capitalism. In this really interesting book, they explore not only how we think about work now, but how the logic of work worms its way even into imagined non-capitalist societies. One of many interesting aspects of their thought is how they pick up on the problem of desire. Do you actually want a bioengineered steak that's both vegan and good for you and a house made of chrome that makes you look super bangable? Or has capitalism or something else created those desires in you? How can you know? Does it even matter? We get into this, but we start with where the idea for the book came from and its relationship to these post-work ideas that became so prevalent in about 2015. Around that time, there was a sort of new appearance of the fantasy of the post-work utopia, mm-hmm. the idea of automation taking all of our work tasks away from us, leading us in, into a new sort of freedom. And you were seeing that with books like Inventing the Future by mm-hmm. Nick Cernick and Alex Williams, Paul Mason, who I, I know you've had on the show, yep. uh, him on post-capitalism, and uh, early, uh, why are you chuckling about Just Paul the, Mason? The difference, the difference between book, <laughs> book Paul Mason <laughs> and like online, and, and hype online. online. Paul Mason, who has categorically melted. Well, you're starting yeah, yeah. to sound like a Stalinist, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm very concerned. Well, concerned yeah, about. He's, yeah, Stalinist by Paul Mason's criteria, which is sort of everyone in it. But yeah, post capitalism definitely had that yeah. vibe. Yeah. So we're getting that. And then, uh, you know, Bastani on mm. uh, fully automated luxury communism. Falk. So there was this sort of sudden like rise in this very optimistic utopian mm. uh, discourse. And we were kind of struck by the way in which that was coming about in the context of austerity, mm. the recession, uh, and well, you know, 2015, the Tories won the election. Yeah. It, it, political conditions that seemed totally antithetical to this kind of luxury communist idea. And mm. yet here it was. And as we started kind of pulling on that thread and looking into the history of the idea, we realised that going back into the 19th century, it's often yeah. been moments when um, working life is at its most 
appalling that this most radical idea has come along. We kind of had a desire to look at the way in which uh, the idea of a post-work future was being deployed mm. in activism and, and politics today. Very quickly, a lot of those people we've named would get absorbed as Corbyn outriders. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, that's one of the things that got in the way of us writing this slightly <laughs> more reflective uh, philosophical, albeit political book right. um, earlier. Mm. So really, it's a book about the way in which the kind of concept of work is very difficult to get rid of. Mm. Uh, and in a time when we're told by the most radical activists that we could have a, an automated future without work, a time when we're told by sociologists and uh, you know, management studies people that our old, old idea of the kind of coherent job mm. and career is now over and we're going to have a different relationship to work. Nonetheless, in all kinds of spheres of life, from formal work to mm. you know our laziest pleasure mm. nonetheless this persistent logic of work reappears happy with that yeah i'm happy with that yes <laughs> that's a good start nailed it i thought an interesting place to begin would be the concept of alienation so could you explain what you understand by that possibly with reference to bakers <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> I guess alienation is the Marxist concept with the way in which your labour is never your own. Mm -hmm. With the bakers, actually, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you talk about the bakers briefly and then mm. we'll see. We refer to the tragedy of not being a baker. Mm. Um, this uh, sociologist, Richard Sennett, one of his celebrated case studies mm -hmm. is that in the 70s, he observed this group of uh, American bakers, mm. uh, th this kind of um, way in which the very hard work, nonetheless, was connected to their identity as part of an immigrant community. Um, in the 1990s, Sennett went back and visited the same bakeries and found that it was no longer these guys all getting up really early in the morning, uh, as part of the same uh, team every day. It was all shift work. Uh, it was no longer homogenous in terms of uh, ethnic background, no longer homogeneously male mm -hmm. either. Um, but more significantly, the kind of art and knowledge that was required of that apparently simple kind of task of baking mm. had been removed from what they were doing, that now it was automated ovens and very kind of simple techniques. This isn't to idealise the old work of being a baker. Nonetheless, it's crucial to sort of see, as it were, the, the identity of that being the job mm. seemed to have gone by the 1990s. These people didn't consider themselves bakers as such. And actually, for, from their point of view, the work that they were doing could have been found in any number of other tasks. We, we go from that to the way in which in our own moment, it's not only sort of traditional working class jobs that are undertaking this loss of mm. uh, coherent task or identity. Actually, we are living through a time where traditional um, bourgeois professions are taking on exactly the same pattern. So that whoever you talk to, whether they are ostensibly a baker, whether they uh, work for Amazon, or whether they, on paper they're mm. a, a solicitor or um, a, a university lecturer, everybody seems to speak in the same language. They mm. say, yeah, this is my job, but I don't really get to do it. It's all admin now, or <laughs> uh, it's all a kind of customer services work now. What used to be a secondary part of all these jobs has mm. become the 
the dominant one. And I, I guess that would fit in with this kind of long story of alienation. I guess mm. the thing about Marxist alienation is you can always be a bit more alienated. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I guess the other problem with that is that at least if you've got a certain set of expertise, mm. craft skills that you need in order to do the job, then you have some sort of leverage mm. towards the boss, hence, you know, the power of the unions to, traditionally mm -hmm. and the emergence of so many jobs now, which apart from the weakening of existing unions, which of course is happening as well, mm. it's just increasingly difficult to unionise, at least in the form that they take right now, because they are so parceled up into small tasks that ultimately anybody could do, mm. i.e. a machine could do. Mm -hmm. So hence that problem of political leverage that is bound up with what might in the first instance look like nostalgia for um, past where bakers were wholesomely connected to their tasks. So mm -hmm. in some ways, it's not that so much that's the point, but the extent to which alienation here isn't just a feeling, but it is a, a very cold material fact, mm. because when anybody can do you, your job, then you are completely fungible. Mm. And it's like anyone can do your job, but your job has got so many weird little elements that it's just become more and more grindingly dull. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you can sort of, anyone can do your job, but your job's got all these like forms you have to fill in and et cetera. That's why yeah, absolutely. I think this fits into the increasing irrelevance of this sort of NRS social grades way of mm -hmm. understanding class. You know, the way people talk about, oh, you know, what about C1, D1, you know, who, who's this? And are we losing touch? Is the left losing touch with these people? But then you look, you actually dig deep into it and you go, oh, right, some electrician who owns two houses, so they're living off a combination of rent and being an electrician, this person can be classed as working class. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone working as an academic who's got like, I don't know, one seminar a week <laughs> on like a zero hours contract, that person's middle class. Yeah. Your kind of point that the what is traditionally the the, the bourgeoisie that all the petty bourgeoisie at least of like lawyers and teachers and people like that white collar workers have been absorbed by this increasingly alienating replaceableness hmm. of work i mean this is of course not to say that there aren't very real differences between the kind of work that people do Absolutely. but i guess one way of putting it might be what do we stand to gain if we recognize how much so many of us hmm. and increasing numbers of us have in common in terms of the way in which we are alienated by our work, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of the precise amount of money or lack thereof that we yeah. have at the end of the month. Absolutely. You talk in the book about the problem of nostalgia, the nostalgia of both the, the right and the left. There is a desire on the left to return to, in America, either the New Deal era yeah. or here, the, the kind of spirit of 45. And there's obviously loads of problems with that in terms of... Um, race and gender certainly but obviously what they're getting at is like wouldn't it be good if unions were more powerful or we had full employment but obviously that's really limited so what are the problems with this uh, nostalgia i think you're quite right that um a lot of our political discourse even at the level of metaphor mm. gets pulled into imagining that the solutions to our current predicaments are contained in some sort of uh, return. The hopefully novel thing we try to show in our, our section on this in the book is that it, it's not simply that that New Deal and then post-war moments uh, like did a lot of 
good things, but unfortunately they were sexist and racist at the time. And so it's not merely that this is a sort of unfortunate coincidence. Actually, those negative uh, sides of it were produced by the very definition of work that mm. the period embraced. This isn't a kind of absolute futurist statement that's uh, to, to look back at all mm. on, on paradigms and thinkers of earlier periods is, a, is an impermissible nostalgia. Yeah. Actually, yeah, hopefully it's a, it's a question of rereading those moments. Mm. And in some ways, perhaps there's also, there's just, there's a warning in that uh, post-war New Deal moment, which is that whatever, in whatever way work gets defined, it's likely to leave some forms of work outside mm -hmm. its, its delineations, which that gets exploited in order to prop up that idea, in this case, of the family wage. Mm -hmm. You know, work is a really big, expansive thing that, mm -hmm. you know, goes into the, you know, the most tiniest crevices of everyday life. Mm -hmm. And whichever way you define it, there's a danger there that you exploit somebody or something. Mm -hmm. So that going forward, this is something we have to bear in mind, I guess. So in criticising nostalgia, you're not saying that, like, everything that's ever happened in the past is bad and therefore we should never refer to it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe be careful. <laughs> yeah. Not in this there's instance. A sort of, there's a, a two-week grace period. Anything yeah. before that that's is, uh, is reactionary, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, how does work and how we think about work affect our ideas of community and how communities are organised? Well, certainly in terms of Jean-Luc Nancy's idea of work and désouvrement that we discussed, there is a real danger. The de definition of work is used to prop up what, according to him, are ultimately fascist ideas of community always. Yeah, <laughs> Basically, yeah, yeah. It goes right, right in the deep end there. You, you need to le leave your definitions of work open in order to also have an open idea of community. Mm -hmm. I mean, this sounds a little bit abstract, but it's intuitive enough. Whenever people talk about protecting workplaces, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. very quickly about uh, scapegoating communities mm -hmm. or even individuals who are somehow threatening mm -hmm. those workplaces. And, and somehow the idea of work always gets linked to a particular idea of community. The ideas that, that Myla's describing here um, of this tradition that, that we sketch of, of 20th century French philosophy and this concept of désœuvrement, what it basically means is that it's harder than you think to get rid of work as yeah. a kind of fundamental uh, uh, lens that all of Western culture ends up being uh, determined by. Community is a, a really kind of great example of that, mm. that, that so often by community we mean mm. your work function within mm. a community. The way New Labour talked about yeah. unemployment is kind of a clear example of that in action. Community was, uh, it's one of those words that everybody thinks that they agree with. Mm. <laughs> but then as soon as you start trying to pin it down, you very quickly kind of tend to drift right in, in your definition of it. Mm. The argument was made at, at that point that the, the problem of unemployment, or mm. to use their preferred uh, technocratic uh, uh, euphemism, social exclusion, mm. the problem of social exclusion was that you were not properly a member of the community. What was the answer to that? Uh, make benefits, a much more conditional. Mm. Uh, it was to 
turn unemployment into a job in itself. The idea was that these people, their problem is not that the neoliberal revolution mm. of the previous decades and a half mm. uh, had taken away available work. The problem was that these people are, they're not, they're not part of the community enough. Yeah. The uh, solutions that were floated in order to resolve that problem, they, they were intended to bring people back into the community of work, mm. but actually had the effect of treating them as less than citizens already, mm. the kind of beginning of a very illiberal drift in the treatment of the unemployed under New Labour, which has reached such, frankly, catastrophic mm. uh, levels in our, our present moment. When you say that the problem is you're not enough of a citizen mm. uh, because you're not uh, doing the kind of work that we recognise, yeah. very quickly that excuses uh, treating them mm. as less than citizens. That's it. I guess in another way you could say, what is the difference between a worker and a citizen? For example, when retired people are talked about, it's always in terms of the contribution they've already made. So this mm. very profoundly economic idea of citizenship elevates work as the mm. centre of everything in life. And this is particularly problematic, of course, when we're talking about refugees. Yeah. Less of an issue in Britain because you haven't left any in whatsoever. <laughs> but, um, yeah. um, but on the continent, often the case for mm -hmm. accepting refugees is made on the potential economic contribution that they'll very quickly mm -hmm. uh, be able to make. So, mm -hmm. so the sense that there isn't any room mm -hmm. for humans mm -hmm. on any other level than as a worker or a potential worker. And it, again, puts it back onto the individual, doesn't it? Of like, the you know, the individual as job seeker. All the stuff of how benefits work and, and the idea of the job seeker comes from major and then new labour. But the economic model of necessarily having three to five percent of the population unemployed to keep inflation down capitalism requires three to five percent of people to just be unemployed even um, as it redefines employment in order to pretend that it has full employment yeah yeah so it's right that happens and you go well actually we need permanent unemployment <laughs> and at the same time not exactly the same time because you point out in the book that under thatcher the dole wasn't massively reformed the welfare system remained basically the post-war welfare system yeah. until major and then really blair radically altered it but they come about, you know, the putting it back on the individual, that kind of get on your bike thing mm -hmm. comes right when the system is geared towards making more people unemployed. But then we get stuff now, don't we? Like the, the, the modern conservatives boasting about more people being in work than ever before. If you interrogate that, there's more. Pe yeah, there's more people in work, but most people in poverty are in work. This is why this idea of malemployment was so important to us. Mm. So this idea that unemployment and un forms of underemployment and beca yeah. precarious employment merge into one. Mm. The crisis has got to a stage that actually warrants a, a whole new vocabulary mm. that um, it, you can at the moment um, be, well, we've got a situation mm. where you can count as employed, mm. but not be making enough money to live on. You can count as employed and be working in uh, an entirely kind of humiliating kind mm. of role with no dignity whatsoever. Mm. You can be employed and still be on benefits, as indeed yeah. most of the people accounting for the welfare mm. bill are. You can be employed and be homeless. Mm. <laughs> um, so in other words, if you had a kind of checklist of conventional expectations that you'd have of work if you had a, a checklist of the myths actually that they yeah. tell you in the job center are the the rewards of the good citizen who works mm. 
actually, you, you, you just wouldn't be ticking off the kind of conventional historical guarantees mm. of what it means to be in work. We've got cases of people working side by side in supermarkets mm. who uh, one of them is a zero hours employee. Mm. The other is a workfare recipient. Mm. One is unemployed. The other is employed. Mm. Uh, the two of them perform the same work right next to each other. Mm. They go to the same food bank. They go to the same job center and go home at night to the same sheltered accommodation wearing the same uniform. Mm. So uh, what we wanted to show is that actually our conventional moralized opposition between mm. employment and unemployment where one is secure and the other is insecure mm. one is healthy and the other is unhealthy mm. one counts as a proper citizen and the other doesn't mm. that this has actually been broken down in the current regime both employment and unemployment are so bad that they, they seem to be the same thing that also kind of opens the space of disemployment people who have been thrown out of either work or the uh, benefit system mm. altogether by the increasing use of sh sanctions mm. uh, since 2010, thrown out entirely so that they don't appear in the conventional economy at all. Um, there have always been benefit sanctions for as long as there's been a welfare state. What's different from the coalition onwards is that it's not only the case that you can be sanctioned because you haven't done work that you've been asked to do, mm. and it's not only the case that you can be sanctioned because you're secretly doing cash in hand labour elsewhere. Mm. The postmodern twist on it is that you can get sanctioned for failing to fulfil the bureaucratic process the job itself. of not having a job yeah exactly <laughs> this this work for labor this mm. fake work yeah. that is created in order to make unemployment a job so if the the welfare state the welfare system is there on the basis that a, a liberal society has a responsibility to keep a bare minimum mm. of a lifeline for everybody mm. when you start using that bare minimum of a lifeline mm. as a punish with the withdrawal of that as a punishment mm. for not completing the right form clearly you, you've departed from a pretty fundamental principle. So that's why we say there is also a, such a thing as disemployment, a, a new form of expulsion from the economy and, and society as such. Let's think about what you say in the book about leisure. In what ways has our free time become increasingly similar to what we would normally understand as work? I guess one simple example that's been discussed in, in various books on the topic for some years is the way in which the browsing that we do online mm -hmm. obviously does um, procure profits mm -hmm. for various companies. And um, there's an, an artwork about this called Wages for Facebook, suggesting that, well, just as in the 70s, an international women's movement demanded wages for housework mm -hmm. because, you know, as Silvia Federici outlines in her manifesto, because of the way capitalism obviously depended on all this unpaid work that was done in the household, maybe we could demand wages for Facebook because mm -hmm. we spend all this time on there. Apparently it's free time, but really money's being made. That's interesting in itself, why this is sinister and controls our data, etc., and brings up all sorts of problems. In some ways, we may not care so much whether, mm -hmm. whilst we're having fun online, some other parties are making money of that. Mm -hmm. But then there is another level, and that's the extent to which the things that we are ostensibly doing mm -hmm. for fun mm -hmm. online are becoming a certain kind of work-like activity. Mm -hmm. The YouTubers are one of the examples that we look at there, there's a certain kind of essential myth mm. of what that apparently beautiful thing is, which is having fun online and somehow, as by accident, 
also making money at the same time, which the myth of the YouTuber is. And Mm. we were reminded of a fairy tale about what is described as a young and beautiful and good girl called Goldmarie, who um, wanders on her own through this sort of strange, uncanny landscape where these household tasks just speak to her as out of nowhere. So there are these apples on the tree Mm -hmm. demanding to be picked and she as instinctively picks the apples and just does it. Nobody tells her to do it. She just performs the task. Mm. Then there are these, weirdly, these loaves of bread Mm. outside an oven um, calling (laughs) calling out to be baked. And again, without question, she just gets on with the job and gets, gets the bread baked. Ultimately, she is rewarded golden coins just drop out of the sky and attach to her dress and then then the golden virgin returns home in triumph on the one hand we get spontaneous remuneration money dropping out of the sky Mm. from the heavens quite literally um as a sort of a new form of wage a wage that isn't a wage but that is a reward Mm. and in some ways how that is what's so attractive about the YouTube fantasy because mm. it's no—it's lo- not actually you being paid for a job that you do know. It's you being rewarded for your intrinsic goodness mm-hmm. and beauty and likability. Mm. Um, so this is obviously an attractive idea, <laughs> but it's also one that, and it's, of course we know that it's wrong. We know mm. that most YouTubers can't possibly live mm. by the money, the advertising revenue mm. that they may or may not get through through the channel. We know that a very few people do, and the ones who do have to work incredibly hard at pretending to to just be spontaneously likable, when in reality it becomes this really mm-hmm. elaborate performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not so much them in themselves that we're interested in, but them as a sort of um, paradigmatic figure of our time. Isn't there a way in which we all have to act like we are mm-hmm. internet celebrities, <laughs> in the sense that we all have to... Um, sell our likability in the first instance, have to somehow seem charismatic, have to all be politicians, all all be celebrities, regardless of what the role is. I mean, this might take some really kind of simple forms, like you may only apply for a customer service role, but you might point to your followers online to Mm. show what a good communicator you are. Mm. But it might be also something deeper than that, where it's just literally the sense that what you do when you go to work is just sell your likability as a person. You sell yourself, you know, body and soul, Mm. whether you're a sex worker or a banker. And then, of course, also the the flip side of it. What happens if money seems to fall from the sky? (laughs) What what happens if everybody's a freelancer Mm. and there isn't a boss? We've got a few little parables or fictions mm-hmm. uh, spread uh, through the book. We're both from uh, English literature backgrounds, mm-hmm. uh, so that's one way in which the the little stories creep into the book. But <laughs> they're um, good. They're good. <laughs> a, a, a pairing we we wanted to suggest was between Gold Marie, who like you know somebody doing their makeup tutorials mm-hmm. or chatting about their day on their vlog, or mm-hmm. somebody just gaming and streaming it on mm-hmm. Twitch. That some of these people are virtuous enough that just doing what comes naturally will result in gold mm. falling from the sky. We could see a, a sort of partner to that uh, that, that fairy tale in um, these two very trashy horror movies, mm. Creep, Creep and Creep 2. I love this so bit of the book, by the way. Okay. This <laughs> is good. The bits these two are talking about right now, the young girlification and the what James is about to talk about with Creep, that's worth the price of admission. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very good. 
Yeah, well, no spoilers. No, yeah, go on. This hipster, early 40s Mm. filmmaker is uh, is kind of down on his luck and Mm -hmm. he answers uh, an ad from some guy who wants a filmmaker to come out into the the forest and make uh, a film for him. And uh, it seems like Mm. a weird job, but the guy goes out and does it because, Mm. you know, when you're precariously self-employed, you have to reach out for those loaves, as uh, (laughs) Bob Murray did. Um, And those moments where in a kind of more conventional job, you Mm. might think, actually, this is a bit much, uh, uh, this is this is going too far, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. In the horror movie, Precarious Labour, World of Creep, uh, of course, you keep doing it. And the guy mm-hmm. acts increasingly, stra- the, mm-hmm. the employer acts increasingly strangely, um, but because, you know, you haven't been paid yet, yeah. you, you stay in the situation. So what, what was striking to us is the way that, uh, you know, every horror movie Everyone says, "Oh, you just leave, wouldn't you? What are you? What's what's he doing? Don't go upstairs." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that actually has a material, yeah, <laughs> economic answer because you've got to stay in it's order very good. to uh, to get paid. Interestingly, in Creep Two, the they're a YouTuber, the, aren't they? Yeah, it's yeah. A YouTuber. Yeah, mm. so we we get this kind of connection drawn between, yeah, a, a, a precarious labourer and a YouTuber. Mm. The film recognizes somehow the franchise recognizes this connection and to that we would have to add another story Mm. the real life case from 2011 of Richard Beasley Richard Beasley yeah Mm. this is the guy who I mean he himself was a sort of disemployed Mm. figure in our Mm. sense of the term he was uh, it's more filmic than creep actually he was a down on his luck preacher Mm. who had uh, been involved in uh, pimping he like the characters answering the online ads in creep Mm. Beasley he acts like a perfect online entrepreneur. Mm. Uh, he starts advertising on Facebook for somebody to come and work on this farm. It doesn't mm. exist. And when the people come to work on the farm, he kills them and steals their car and their uh, forcible property. Beasley, in, in spotting that there were these forgotten men, these middle-aged guys, either divorced or, or single, mm. who didn't have family connections, didn't mm. have professional connections, mm. and so were really available to being offered this fantasy online that they could come and live this post-work existence, actually, yeah. uh, occupying this farm. They're tempted into it, and, and on they go. I mean, we point out that this is uh, exactly Trump's, uh, yeah. um, the, the, the people that Trump was uh, mm. appealing to and what won him those Rust Belt states in yeah. such a surprise. So, yeah, th- these, inc- these examples and stories come together to show this thread running through all these different kinds of labor that all have in common. Well, like Goldberry, you're under the illusion that it's no longer your actual tasks that mm. are uh, the thing you're being re- rewarded for. It's mm. some kind of inherent virtue there in your in your very identity or even your very biology mm. that regime of desirability yeah you can put it that way that way in which it's it's your inherent desirableness that mm. is what you're being rewarded for mm. but that desirableness is actually what makes you so vulnerable right now mm. and maybe something to draw together there mm. so in the goldenberry uh, folktale the attractive thing is that precisely reward doesn't come. No, no human actor has forced her to do the tasks mm-hmm. and no human actor as such rewards her. The reward just seems to come from nowhere. And I guess the sinister side of that myth of, of YouTube celebrity, let's mm-hmm. say, 
is when the money comes from nowhere, then there's also no employer. There's nobody to hear your complaint. There's nobody to complain to. And yeah. that particular comes out most creepily mm. in both that murder case and, and the horror film in the sense that, of course, yes, these people are not in a position to say no to the job because mm. they're all freelancers, because you have to you follow the ad, you go to, go to this nowhere place and nowhere person. Mm. And then, of course, they're stuck. And then, of course, they get murdered and disappear yeah. <laughs> in the horror film version. But in the employment tribunal version of this, there's no boss um, to whom to complain mm. in that sort of gig economy or whatever you want to call it. Mm. Sort of in- as it increases it, its reach, it mm. also makes you more on your own as a worker because those traditional structures just disappear more and more. Well, like you say, the, the, you know, we, we talk exaggeratedly in these stories about like killing and death, but with self-employment, that kind of precarious self-employment becoming the norm, what you're doing, there isn't a boss, an external boss, but that there is an internal boss. You become the one going, oh, I'm going to have, even though I feel a bit sick today, I'm going to have to put out content, you know, specifically with YouTube, but any, like a lot of jobs, like you say, it's not, we're not specifically talking about YouTube, we're talking about YouTube as a clear example of the most exaggerated form of it. And and we can tell it's so important to culture because YouTuber, it's overtaken astronaut as the thing kids most want to do. But then if you actually, you look at the conditions of YouTubers, they're like, there's a huge mental health crisis, even at people who are making, the ones who are making tens of thousands of pounds, there's there's mental health stuff. But if if we go to that idea of death, like as soon as you're putting a boss inside yourself, I mean, one, that makes it pretty difficult to unionize because how are you going to unionize against someone that's in your own head? Mm -hmm. But also if they're controlling your behavior, if, if you, you would want to do one thing but you're unable to do so because you're your own boss and therefore kind of disciplining yourself are you alive? Well this is, <laughs> this is precisely why we uh, reject um, in the book mm. the story of Bartleby the, yeah. uh, the famous story written by Herman Melville mm. in the 19th century which has been a kind of totem text for the anti-work movement and, mm. and indeed was was read at read aloud at Zuccotti Park yeah. uh, by the Occupy movement the claim could be made that actually part of the uh, structural failure of yeah. Occupy can be read in the fact that they think that that story can still mm. cut it the story where the Scrivener the, yeah. the copy clerk uh, suddenly one day at work says uh, when told his task he says mm. I would prefer not to and keeps saying yeah. it and everybody in the workplace becomes obsessed with him uh, he, he does die not without occupying the yeah. minds of everyone around him mm. becoming this kind of great work of literature mm. um, but to still be resorting to this idea that there's something radical about saying I would prefer not to, there's a sort of mistake there mm. because it implies it implies an audience for your protest. That's right. So, um, and and interestingly, you could see that um, in it seems that in that what you might actually call a kind of 19th century tradition of yeah. workers' horror that already yeah. begins with Dickens and with uh, Sherlock Holmes, mm. where there are all these minor characters who somehow have not got the, the mm. opportunity to prefer not to, yeah. but they just have to take these weird jobs, mm. whether it's fixing some weird machine in a Sherlock Holmes story and or becoming a governess in mm. this really weird household where they require you to cut off your hair and then it turns out you're a double yeah. or whatever. All of these weird stories which usually end badly for the person who had to take on the job regardless mm. of whether they preferred not to or not. They kind of should sort of show that from industrialization onwards mm. there are these increasing spaces where I mean exploitation of course is longer, <laughs> has a longer history mm. than industrialization but how 
how there are those th- those pockets mm. increasingly uh, under liberal capitalism where there just is no there's no boss there is no audience mm. there is nobody to whom you, you can complain and this of course in digital capitalism is crystallized and exaggerated um, it's, it's interesting you say that about um sorry just going back about uh, g- kids not wanting to be an astronaut, yeah. but wanting to be a YouTuber. The, yeah, the fact that uh, presentation and communication mm. has replaced activity, yeah. even mm. at the level of... Uh, Imagination, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A former student of mine who uh, became a secondary school teacher, mm. she came back for a kind of a teacher's day where we were mm-hmm. like sharing you know, approaches to teaching. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the teachers were saying that trying to teach English literature at school, mm. I mean, part of it... it has very specific political reasons. The game yeah, yeah, syllabus yeah. is a big problem. But actually, a big part of the problem is like getting the students to read a mm. whole novel. This, you know, this is this was a problem when we were kids, of mm-hmm. course. But it, it's the fact that like the dominant modes of reading and communication and understanding of text is yeah. so, like different to the yeah. experience of reading a whole novel. And I sort of tried the like, idea that the big Silicon Valley companies want you to be distracted. Yeah. They want you to be constantly jumping from one thing to mm. another to have 50 tabs up. And actually there might be something almost rebellious about pulling yeah. on the brakes as Walter Benjamin would put it, yeah. and saying, no, I'm logging the hell off and I'm <laughs> going to read this book. And she said, yeah, but they don't want to rebel. They they just completely identify mm. with this. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that this, kids are inherently reactionary mm. or anything like that. Yeah, no. But it's just interesting that they don't acknowledge the platform as an antagonist or a form of power in that way. No. Rather, it, that is what communication is meant mm. to be. And mm. it's there that they aspire to succeed. Mm. And maybe just to add an, another element of this sort of YouTuber celebrity approach to life, mm. which is the way in which its structure permits very smoothly to disappear all sorts of social safety net functions in a very strange way. So, for example, the phenomenon of sites like Just Giving, which are yeah. bigger in America than they're here, yeah, yeah. but are getting increasingly big here as well, where people are very much selling their own predicament, mm. whether it is a cancer diagnosis or some other life crisis, and turn it into an attractive narrative in order to get mm. strangers to fund them. Yes, charity has always been inherently reactionary. Yeah. Charity is not what we want, but it's a it's it's another level when mm. it isn't, okay, we're just going to have this charitable uh, institution and somehow um, collect money and give it to the needy. No, the needy have to present themselves as the deserving poor. Mm. Not just deserving, but also attractive, interesting. They have to hold your attention precisely according to the rules of the attention economy, enough for you to give them some money for them to be able to pay for their cancer treatment. So you can see how this isn't just something that, you know, changes the idea of what it is desirable to be. It just makes it very easy to just hide the fact that all Mm. of those supportive welfare structures are are disappearing and instead are being replaced with this most reactionary idea that anything that you get has to be due to your own internet desirability. Crowdfunding commodifies whatever you're trying to get the funding for, doesn't it? Even if that is, doesn't matter if it's a video game or cancer care. You had a great line in the the book, which kind of relates to all this, I just want to pull out, which was, by farming our desires, capitalism not only gets free housework and free data, it also produces subjects 
who relate to themselves as commodities online and offline. Oh, thank you. That's one of yours. <laughs> Very good. Um, <laughs> but I think that kind of ties, tie, kind of ties, ties together everything we, yes, we were discussing yes, there. Very neat. To wrap up, we should t- return back to what you said, the kind of book was originally maybe a reaction to, which is the idea of post-work or anti-work and maybe what you call the Jetsons fallacy. Right. I mean, this one is actually a, a quite a tricky philosophical problem in a way, but oh, yeah. it can be put in, very, in a very simple With way. Well, you know, I, I was kind of tr- trying to leave that out, but all right. <laughs> so, you know, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Jetsons, as I wasn't until mm-hmm. James brought up this idea. It's like the Flintstone. It's basically the, the mirror program to yeah, the Flintstone. Yeah, yeah. So it's set in the future. And there's this nuclear family, of course, middle class nuclear family. And the joke and the pleasure of the show in many ways is that even though it is the far distant Mm. high-tech future, they live exactly like a 1960s family, including some of the, you know, gadgets, Uh etc. And and that's that's basically how it works. So what's the Jetson fallacy? Well, it is the assumption that in the future, we will want Mm. and value the same things as Mm. we do right now. Mm. But how can we know that? And in terms of the, I guess, the kind of post-work project, the tricky question is, well, if if capitalism harnesses and moulds our desires to a certain extent, we can't really have a new world without at least some new desires Mm. or perhaps some really old ones. But how can we want that new world if we don't get to have the desires fulfilled that we feel right now? Mm. So how do you how do you get from that old world to the new world without mm. so yeah so that's that's sort of our, our the initial, problem yeah our initial critique of um like a lot of the people who have argued for a post-work future where mm. robots or whatever do all mm. the work and, and, and we therefore live these lives of leisure you know that that begins in the 19th century mm. uh, uh through to a great liberal thinker, mm. uh, um, Maynard Keynes, through to the, the left and through to the present day. The, the, our first kind of retort to it was so often the radical idea of a life without work has ended up being justified mm. on the basis of other purer mm. kinds of work. Mm. This is kind of an interesting sort of mm philosophical slip if you like that how do I justify to someone and it's very interesting you get into a pub conversation about <laughs> uh, the idea of fully automated luxury communism yeah. and people just beg to beg their way back into work it's always oh yeah but I know this guy he, he couldn't be happy mm. if he wasn't in his job mm. this would be terrible there, there's something actually slightly traumatic about mm. being told you can do whatever you want yeah. and, and so it, it's almost as if that psychological problem Mm. perhaps has led Mm. anti-work thinkers Mm. from William Morris and Oscar Wilde onwards Mm. to almost apologetically kind of tell us the kinds of good productive activities that Mm. we'll be able to do after work has ended Mm. and even Marx when he does occasionally allow himself to discuss what it is we'll be doing Mm. okay they tend to be sort of the more anecdotal light passages Mm. nonetheless they're revealing it's all about okay you in the morning you'll go fishing in the evening we'll discuss Hegel Mm. Uh, a lot of Mm. Marxist commentators have have stressed how Marx was a great scholar of Mm. Aeschylus he Mm. tried to write a a novel based on Stern's Tristram Shandy Mm. All, all these kind of 
finally we'll be able to do all this appreciation of art finally mm. you'll pick up that clarinet from school <laughs> and and you'll be able to kind of reach this fulfillment it's a variation on the Jetson's mm. fallacy mm. because it assumes that having totally transformed uh, the economic system mm. you'll nonetheless be participating in the kinds of responsible activity mm. that at the moment we imagine we're only being prevented from doing yeah, by yeah. Our, our working lives. Tellingly, it's not the case that Marx says it's going to be great under communism, you'll do your couple of hours work, mm. then you can just ride mm. around on your penny farthing doing wheelies, yeah. drink loads of gin. It, it's not that <laughs> you can't just say, oh yeah, you're just going to have a laugh. Yeah. You have to, in the post-work tradition, mm. kind of make a... Um, a covertly moralized actually yeah, yeah, yeah. demand for this other kind of mm. so-called good work I mean, a good material example of this, even outside leftist debates, mm. is the explosion of vegan um, yeah, yeah, yeah. meats right now. Subway, meatless meatballs, mm. Greg's famously. KFC. Uh, historically, like what would be the leftist response to mm. something like factory farming mm. or the environmental damage done by consumption of meat? Mm. The reason there is this new consumer audience for veganism is people are starting to get the message that yeah. we can't sustain uh, the world on this mm -hmm. level of mm -hmm. meat eating a kind of traditional left interrogation would want to say well where does this desire for meat come from in the mm. first place does it connect to ideas of nationalism does it attach to um, mm. kind of questions of the, the cultivation of masculinity and so mm. on the fully automated luxury communism answer is mm. don't worry too much about it. <laughs> just just as, <laughs> right, yeah. just yeah, yeah, as yeah, yeah, when yeah. we say, oh, is our problem on the left that we can't answer people's aspirations yeah, yeah, to yeah. own commodity goods? The fully automated luxury communism answer is, well, they can have those luxury goods then. Right. They're going to find a way to produce some that gets rid of the violences attached to them. Mm. Don't worry about the cultural associations. You know, it's a real, it's a real shift towards the material. Mm. Which, if we can make you a burger that is grown from plants that tastes and looks like a real burger, mm. and that is, you want the real burger. We give you the fake burger mm. that hasn't hurt anyone. No problem. So that's that's of course the Falk sort of position. But then the question is, well, are there maybe some problems nonetheless? What about those cultural associations of meat eating? What about the sexual politics of meat? You know, we're not saying that it's right or wrong. We're just interested in this new response. I mean, in that way, the Falk answer to the mm. <laughs> Jetsons fallacy, mm. the idea that, yeah, we'll embrace the, the Jetsons. We'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if it were, everything in the future were exactly the mm. same in terms of our selfishness, our, mm. our greed, our unkindness, our sexism, racism, mm -hmm. whatever, even if that were all there mm. in the future, nonetheless, that doesn't change the nature of the like, economic demand, mm. as it were. Mm. Increasingly, in, in all areas of cultural criticism, we're starting to see figures who make a very similar claim mm. that desire itself has maybe not been appreciated in its full complexity mm. in a lot of left-wing critique. Mm. And one of the things that we need to be able to do on the left is to understand that people's desires are very often complex and contradictory mm. and that the offer we're making them needs to be one that avoids a kind of 
to straightforward moralism. I think that just about sums it up. I guess this idea with repurposing your desire in some way still acknowledges that there may well be things about our current desires that are bad and that need readdressing. In a way, you know, the vegan burger is an example which seems to work well enough, but what if we get to like sex dolls for Mm -hmm. all or whatever? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's never going to be as simple as simply giving everybody what they want, but that hopeful optimism of repurpose your desire would be a mixture of of, of analysis Mm -hmm. um, with this idea that we are damaged by capitalism, we are products of it in some ways, but we can take ourselves and our bad desires as we are right now Mm. and turn it into something else, Mm. but not to assume that what we have to do is to abandon our machine and run in the woods, as we know Mm. they are only full of creepy, murderous, (laughs) off Craigslist anyway, (laughs) so we don't want to do that. Mandatory Redistribution Party was created and produced by Sean Morley and Jack Evans. Our title theme was created by Ella Jean. Mariah and James's book, Work, Want, Work, Labour and Desire at the End of Capitalism, is out soon from Zed Books. Do keep an eye out for it. If you enjoy Mandatory Redistribution Party, please further realise your desires, and those of mine and Sean's, by leaving us a review, following us on Twitter at MandoParty, and please do uh, sub-a-dub-dub. Oh no, I'm sorry. Subscribe, just subs- so just subscribe. Um, how do I turn this off? Controls it. Controls that. Delete. Escape. How do I? What do I? Help. Help me.